Hello and welcome to another Working From Home episode of No Such Thing As A Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, with Andrew Hunter-Murray and Anna Tajinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that's my fact this week. My fact is, two days after receiving his latest book, the author of Annals of Gullibility, Why We Get Duped and How to Avoid It, lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in a Ponzi scheme. (laughs) How embarrassing. Yeah. Very funny. He did admit that it was embarrassing. He kind of thinks it's funny now, you know, with the distance of time to look back at it. But um, (laughs) this is a guy called Stephen Greenspan, and he'd written this book, and... um, And it was meant to sort of help you to understand how not to be duped by exactly the thing that caught him off guard. So he got caught off guard by the greatest Ponzi scheme of them all, which was the Bernie Madoff, um, which Mm. set so many people around the world, uh, losing thousands and millions in some cases. Uh, It's the biggest of its kind. And yeah, it was recommendation via his sister. And um, two days after receiving his latest book, he lost 400,000. Wow. In his advice as to how to avoid it, did it include things like, you know, don't take advice from ill-informed siblings and don't invest with people (laughs) who have surnames that sound suspiciously like the phrase made off? (laughs) I think a revised edition was uh, hastily issued (laughs) with all this in there. Um, Dan, can I just check? Is a, is, the, is a Ponzi scheme basically a pyramid scheme? It's a, where... No, it's, it's, uh, what it no? is is you get in early investors and you get their money. And when you bring in new investors, you give the money of the new investors a bit of it to the early investors. So it seems as if they're getting return on their money. And then you kind of... Oh, I thought that was a pyramid scheme, no, basically. A pyramid scheme is where you uh, bring in new investors and they have to bring in new investors, and that money comes up to the people higher up in the pyramid. It's slightly different. This uh, is, I see. So the Ponzi scheme is more flat. It's more like a, a, a large plane on the deserts of Egypt compared to the wow. pyramid. A Ponzi scheme is the thing that we used to do as kids, which I found so thrilling. Do you remember where you'd get a letter <laughs> that had a chocolate bar in it, and, you said, and it said, um, send this on with... No, wait, how would it work? <laughs> no, you're, you're right. You're doing it right. Someone sends you a letter saying, send me a chocolate bar. But then you send the letter to six people and then ask you ask each of them to send you a chocolate bar and then you get six chocolate bars. It was amazing. That's a pyramid that scheme. That's a yeah. pyramid scheme, not a Ponzi scheme. But it's Anna, so if you similar. had been investing... No, a Ponzi it's, scheme... It's pretty similar. No, no, it's, no, it's, no, it's, it's similar. Well, it's similar, but it <laughs> is, there's quite a distinctive difference. So in a Ponzi scheme, you would get a load of Mars bars from loads of different people and then you would cut some of the Mars bars up and then give Mm. the Mars bar back with another half of a Mars bar to someone who Mm. sent you one Mars bar. And so they think they're getting one and a half back. But actually what you're doing is you're using other people's Mars bars to do it and eventually you're going to run out of Mars bars. Do you have to rewrap the Mars bars once you've cut them up? I feel feel like it's more different with Mars bars than it is with money. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is when you get a manky half a bars bar through the post. It's a bit different than getting a nice crisp fifty pound note. We're rich. We're rich. You know what's weird? Just in order to get ready for this fact, I looked up what a Ponzi scheme was, so I knew what it was. I now have no idea what it is off the back of all these. <laughs> <laughs> it's regret. literally all unlearned. It all it is is a pyramid scheme has one person at the top, ten people next, a hundred people next, a thousand people next, whereas a Ponzi scheme has one person at the top and then everyone else is flat. Basically. You actually did explain it completely correctly, Dan. We just started throwing Mars bars around. Basically. <laughs> uh, but the first Ponzi scheme was basically invented by accident, wasn't it? By Charles Ponzi. Mm. He didn't quite mean to do it. He sort of meant it to be legit. So it was in the 1920s. And he was he had the scheme where he was buying stamps or actually these things called reply coupons. And that was when if you wrote to a friend internationally, you included a reply coupon, which I think essentially meant it was like doing a reverse charge call, but on a letter. And it meant that they could write back to you for free. Anyway, he bought them overseas for much cheaper because they were cheaper overseas and then sold them for more in the US. And he said to people, I've got this amazing scheme where I can make a massive profit on these reply coupons. And he got people to invest and they did. And he hadn't factored in the fact that he'd have to pay for all the ridiculous international travel to these places to go and buy these stamps in the first place. Mm -hmm. So he realized the scheme couldn't make any money at all. But these people were investing loads of money. And you can see the reasoning where he started to think, oh, I'm, I still am receiving all this money. Shall I just keep keep going with this and not yeah. mention that it doesn't work? It's kind of working well for a short period of time, isn't it, I guess? It is. Until he, um, I think someone did the maths and worked out that he was claiming to be buying and selling 160 million reply coupons and only 27,000 existed in the world. <laughs> And yeah, the Boston Post did an mm. article in 1920, didn't they, demonstrating that it was completely impossible. Uh, and when they did an audit afterwards, they found only $61 worth of these stamps, even though he'd said that he'd bought millions and millions of dollars worth. Wow. <laughs> so he did try. He got yeah, a few. He got a few. Uh, but when the Boston Post came up with this um, expose, everyone thought, oh my God, I've given him all my money. I need my money back. And so they did a run on him to try and get all of their money back. And he just completely fronted it out. And he just said, yeah, no worries. Uh, you guys just queue up uh, and I'll give you your money back. And they stood in the queue and he bought them sandwiches and coffee. And people weren't sure whether he was real or not, still at that stage. And so half the time they were cheering him and half the time they were booing him. No one really knew what was happening. And then eventually the government got involved and looked at his accounts and found he was $3 million in the red. And they later revised it to $7 million in the red and he got arrested. And when he got arrested, everyone lost their money. Oh, wow. What was his long-term plan with that queue outside his house? <laughs> I just think sometimes it's like, maybe tomorrow it'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. If you're calm enough with the beginning of the queue, then the end will probably get bored and go away. Well, that's what happened. Like, because loads of people started running on it, but some people still trusted him. So there became a secondary speculation market where people would buy the Ponzi coupons on a cheaper price so that the people in the queue would at least get something back. And the people who bought it thought, well, this is actually real. It's for real. So I'm going to get the full amount back. So there became speculation on the speculation. Mm, that's clever. crazy. Um, while we're on scammers, have you guys heard of... Victor Lustig. I don't think we've ever mentioned Was him before. Was he the guy who sold the Eiffel Tower? Or He's the guy who sold it twice. Yes, <laughs> right. Oh, wow. So he knew that Paris was broke. He's a, um, he was living in Paris. And he thought maybe the city will want to sell the Eiffel Tower off because it's been up for 30 years, it's a bit rusty. And so he decided to forge some government stationery 
And he wrote to a load of scrap metal dealers and he invited them all to an expensive suite at a hotel. And he said, hello, uh, I am the Deputy Minister of Posts. And he said, well, we're looking for buyers, but um, we've got to keep it quiet from public opinion because there might be, you know, controversy. And then one of the guys was tempted, an especially stupid dealer called Andre Poisson, Andrew Fish. <laughs> and he said, I'd really like to buy the Alphatava scrap. And he paid a massive bribe to secure the ownership. And um, unsurprisingly, the Alphatava was not for sale. But he got away with it. It. He was uh-huh. so successful, Victor Lusty. Was he never? Was he never busted? He was busted later on right. for his Romanian box. What's that mean? <laughs> what? okay, what's that? It's, um, it was a box which would duplicate any banknote that you put in it. <laughs> obviously, obviously, <laughs> I know, I know. Brilliant. Obviously, it wouldn't. Okay, well, James Nana, I'm not going to try and sell you one, but Dan, you're looking interested. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> He had he had concealed genuine notes within the device, uh, and then as long as you only put in a selective range, and it had all these buttons and levers that you press and pull, and you know, and then another banknote would come out, and they'd think, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" What, so was he inside and, making the noises like the? <laughs> <laughs> he just made a complicated looking box, basically, and he sold the box for a lot of money to various different people. And then once there was a, a sheriff in Texas who realized that the scam caught up with him in another state. And then Lustig said, oh, you're just not using it right. Don't worry. It's okay. Completely persuaded him it was fine. And then said, look, let me give you all this cash to compensate you, which was counterfeit money. (laughs) So he managed to pay his way out of it. Yeah, he was very cool. Like you were saying about how he said, oh, I'm not really supposed to talk about this. And so people trusted him. Uh, Ponzi did that as well. So when they said to him, how are you making this work? Because it doesn't seem like it work, all these stamps. He said, oh, yeah, I've got a system, um, which I don't want to tell you because then the government will shut it down. And then mm. when everyone did the run on him and started queuing up for money, he said, oh, guys, guess what? I've come up with a new system. It's completely different. It's not to do with stamps at all. It's just really, really awesome. And so this one will get you even more money. So why don't you give me more money? But he kept saying, I can't tell anyone what it is because if I tell you, then everyone will be doing it. And that's mm. what kind of suckers people in. Yes. It's got to be adaptable. Do you know how you find out if someone is gullible? Uh, oh. no. Oh, well, let me tell you about my magic box. <laughs> no, um, uh, I don't know. Um, is there like a, a questionnaire or something? It's exactly that. There's a questionnaire, but basically it is just asking, are you gullible? It's amazing. <laughs> it's a 12-question questionnaire. Some Australian authors came up with it, and it measures persuadability and insensitivity to untrustworthiness. And But the questions are really, they're all things like, my friends think I'm easily fooled. Do you disagree, agree, strongly agree? And basically... If you answer yes to those questions or that you agree with them, you're gullible. Oh, really? Which is weird because I would have thought gullible people wouldn't automatically know it. No, because as soon as you know that you're gullible, surely you can start correcting your gullibility. No, Apparently I, not. I know I'm gullible and I can't stop it. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys decide to tell me some bullshit on this show, I will believe it until I see the smile on your face. Hey, Dan, what do you, think, what do you think about this? We are in the midst of a high-frequency blossoming of interconnectedness that will give us access to the quantum soup itself. What do you think of that sentence? I don't fully... What's the quantum soup? Is that like primordial soup? <laughs> Well, maybe you're not that gullible because apparently people who take that kind of bullshit aphorism and think that it's quite deep are people who rate more highly on this gullibility scale. Oh, okay. Oh. Okay, so I'm still gullible. I'd be like the leader of the gullibles. I'd be going, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I know how that sounds, guys, but I don't think that's right. 
<laughs> I've not had that soup. <laughs> you know, that, do you remember that old joke at school, which was um, that, you know, the word gullible mm. isn't in the dictionary? Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that the OED published a special edition where they took it out of the oh, dictionary? Oh, no. <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't. Wait, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Think of the labour and... involved in printing an entire new edition of the dictionary just for one joke. It doesn't stack up. I just want to point out that Dan <laughs> was the first one who spotted that. And yeah. so I think, well done, you're not as gullible yep. as we all think. That's possible. Although okay. actually, apparently, humans aren't too gullible. We all have this conception that we're really gullible and we're always falling for stuff. But studies seem to show that we're actually too sceptical. And so um, there's there have been a bunch of things that... So fake news is often used as an example of how we're too gullible. We believe this stuff. We change our voting habits. But all the studies that have really been done on fake news over the last few years have showed that it didn't impact elections at all because people only ever consumed the sort of fake news that already accorded with what they believed. So it wasn't like they were reading stuff and going, oh my God, Hillary Clinton really is a lizard. It was like... <laughs> They already thought she was probably a lizard. And so <laughs> it's just confirmed it. Um, but actually, we're too sceptical. So there's a very famous psychologist called Julian Rotter, who died quite recently. But he said that the more trustful you are, the more successful you are in life, and the better you are at determining if someone is trustworthy or if something's worth supporting, because you've practiced it. So people okay. who are more trusting generally, they practice it through life, and then you learn who to trust and who not to trust. Whereas the cynics who just think, oh God, everyone's a liar, everyone's trying to dupe me, they actually have no idea and they lose out because of that. So Anna, are you saying that me and Nandi are really great because we fell for your dictionary prank? Sounds like You're it. really smart and let me talk to you afterwards about a scheme I've got up and running. <laughs> Whereas, but Dan is the cynic and he's just like living in his barrel yeah. Um, like Diogenes. Oh, no. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> it always comes back it. to Diogenes, doesn't it? Um, there was a dictionary scam back in the day where uh, hucksters would go around uh, pubs getting into uh, getting money off people with a dictionary-based bet. Okay. So the idea is three of you go into the pub, you all pretend you don't know each other, you just start, you know sit at different places. It's quite easy for and us. Then, yeah, <laughs> three of us. I've gone home, um, and then one of one of you guys will start repeatedly using the word "infortunate." Okay, let's say Dan keeps saying, "Oh, it's really unfortunate about this," and then James or Anna will lean over and say, uh, "Excuse uh, Dan, me, it's, I, I think it's unfortunate." Bingo, exactly. And then Dan will say, uh, it's pretty unfortunate that you're such an idiot or whatever. And you get into this what? big wow. argument. I can only apologise, James. I must have been quite drunk when I said that. You get into this huge row and obviously you get everyone else involved and you start putting money on it. And then Dan pulls out his dictionary, which does have the word infortunate in it because mm. it, it's an old version of the word. And then you get the money. Wait a minute, then... where does Anna come into this story? Surely she's the one with a dictionary. <laughs> I've been at the bar this whole time. I got really bored very early on in this chat and I went to talk to some people at the bar. It must be the case that she happens to be a dictionary salesman who has a dictionary in her pocket. Otherwise, what's the That's point of being there? That's even better. Yep. Yeah, That's very yeah it does. Unless the third person is just for audience purposes to cheer oh, yeah. people on. It's sort of to get more people involved in the bet. Hey, come and look at the argument these guys are having. <laughs> wow. That's very clever. And did it, and is there a whole history of that? Like, is that a, a gang that went round, the dictionary gang? Or do we, <laughs> yeah. Is this a one-off? Is this a one-off incident? No, I think some people have used it repeatedly, but I don't think it was a massive... Because if it's a... 
the trend only lasts until everyone has heard of it because there are hundreds of gangs going around the pubs <laughs> doing the unfortunate play. <laughs> oh man, that's it. During gang wars, I wouldn't want to be in that gang. <laughs> Have you not the... watched Gangs of London recently? <laughs> no. There's one episode where the dictionary gang comes along. <laughs> It's it's the least violent of all the episodes, I have to say. Hey, you could get some pretty big dictionaries. You could do some serious damage with the full edition of the OED. That's yeah. true. Kill someone. Yeah, uh, sticks and stones, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found um, a, a gullible person who fell for a scam. Have you guys heard of this guy in New York who a few years ago sued a psychic for fraud? No. no. It's, I mean, it is sad, but in 2015, he sued the psychic because over the years, he'd given her over $700,000 because he wanted her to make the woman that he fancied fall in love with him. It's an old classic Shakespearean tale. He should have just wow. given the 700000 yeah. to the girl. <laughs> Actually, James, women can't be bought. I, I agree, um, but it's worth a try rather than giving it to a psychic, isn't it? <laughs> That should have been his first. At least the person you like has got a lot of dosh. Yeah. He was actually, he's walking down the streets in New York thinking, this is really sad. I've told this woman I really love her and she said she has no interest in me whatsoever. And he passed a sign saying psychic with a flashing arrow. And so you already know he's a bit gullible. He walked in and this psychic just managed to convince him, for instance, to fork out um, $40,000 so she could do him a fake funeral to convince the bad spirits that he had died so that they stopped plaguing him and let this woman fall in love with him. Why not invite the woman he fancied to the fake funeral? and see if she was sad that he died, and then he bursts out of the coffin. Come on, Andy. And then that is, the woman he fancies I don't think I've got another chance. That is never going to work, is it, in a romantic... That's how my wife and I got together. <laughs> <Is> it... <laughs> Fun, true story, yeah. <laughs> I think you might risk the woman thinking you're a weirdo, which this guy definitely wasn't, to be clear. Um, he also paid $80,000 for an 80-mile-long 80 bridge made of gold to lure the spirits into the other realm. What? And then Can the psychic say, told him that... that sounds like yeah. quite a good deal for a bridge made of gold. That's an incredible bargain. Yeah. That's so cheap. It is. I think uh, the thing is the bridge made of gold didn't really exist in this realm so you can never get the evidence that it has oh, been built. Oh, different nice. realm bridge. Um, yeah, much different cheaper. Different realm bridge. Cheaper. And then yeah. <laughs> much less. Did the guy did, the, did he not see the psychic increasingly turning up in fur coats in Maseratis and all of this stuff? And she's like, like I bought them in the other realm. It's much cheaper over there. <laughs> Eventually, after he'd forked out another 90 grand for a longer oh. bridge, because the spirits weren't going over this one, um, halfway through this, the woman he was in love with very sadly died. Oh, no. oh. And the psychic thought quickly on her feet and said, oh, well, uh, don't worry, we'll just have to pay a bit extra for my reincarnation machine to be built. Oh, and so quite paid oh, no, this is a terrible story. Wow. It, it, it is awful. And it was only when she said she built this reincarnation machine and Michelle, this woman you're in love with, is now inside this new woman you've just met. And he said, I met the new woman and I thought, she doesn't seem like Michelle at all. And that was when I started to think the psychic wasn't who she was purporting to right. be. Oh my God. How did That's... this guy have access to $700,000 in the first place? That house? man is now the president <laughs> of the United States of America. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that in 2011, former Paralympian Josh Sundquist, who's missing his left leg, announced that he'd found his soulmate. 
i.e. someone missing a right leg with whom you can split pairs of shoes. <laughs> wow. I don't know how I sort of came across this, but I was watching his YouTube channel. So uh, Josh is a, he was a Paralympian skier and he's now an author and a comedian and public speaker. And he sort of posted a video saying he's got these piles of shoes he's been saving up for years because obviously you can't buy one shoe, but he only needs one. So he's got loads of right shoes and he'd been looking for someone who could wear them. And then he found living in the same city as him, a chap called Stephen missing a right leg, same shoe size, and crucially, same taste in shoes. Oh. So they had a lovely meetup where they did some swapsies. That's great. That's great. It's a beautiful story. Although it was quite, I mean, I think he might have been conned, to be fair, because he'd obviously been saving up his right shoes over the years, mm. Josh. And so he came with yeah. this giant mountain, whereas Stephen wasn't expecting the soulmate reunion. So he'd presumably chucked away all his left shoes. So he only gave um, Joshua one shoe. So it was sort of a one shoe in exchange for about 50 shoes. There are charities <laughs> out there where you can... So if you have lost a leg or lost a foot, mm. but also mm. if you have a pair of feet that are different sizes, like we all do, but some people much bigger than others, um, wow. there are some places where you can you can match up with people with um, the opposite-sized feet to you. Oh, cool. Really? Yeah. In um, America, great. there's something called the National Odd Shoe Exchange which is NOSE, N-O-S-E, uh, and they put people together with mismatched feet. And in the UK, there's something called Joe's Odd Shoes, um, which is on Facebook, uh, where all you have to do is pay postage and packaging, and they'll send you a single shoe. Very cool. That's so cool. Nice. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Usually when you do those acronyms, it usually works out as something like foot. <laughs> it's a bit odd <laughs> to go for NOSE. You're absolutely right. They should... Well, maybe they had um, this conversation. Ooh, 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 ooh. Footwear, odd one out trading. And it's foot, except foot is also the beginning of footwear. So it's a cheat. <laughs> Apart from odd one out has got three O's in a row. So it would be oh, foot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's Josh. Great guy. But I was, I was sort of looking into prosthetics. And there's some really cool prosthetics out there that you can get. So have you guys heard of this woman called Sophie de Oliveira Barata? Nope. No. Um, she's got this thing called the Alternative Limb Project, and she's basically an artist. It's in North London, and she makes these bespoke limbs. And she was, she was inspired to do it. She had this client who was a little girl who had one leg, and every year she'd come for an upgraded leg because she was growing. And she started asking for, she asked at first for pepper pigs at the top of her leg, pictures of pepper pig eating ice cream. And so Sophie was like, yeah, sure, nice. whatever. And then she came back the next year and asked for a Christmas scene at the top, which I think is very short-termist, and she's going to regret that in February, <laughs> but whatever. Um, and this woman, Sophie, thought, well, this is great. What a good idea. And so she was inspired by Inspector Gadget, because you know he makes, yes. well, he makes gadgets. Yeah. Um, he has long arms so, and legs, doesn't he, sometimes? Exactly. Uh, so she makes long arms and legs and special arms and legs. And so for one guy, she made a hyper-realistic foot that looked really like his own foot. And she got hairs off the back of his neck and put them on the toes. Wow. Not many people in history have ever looked at their toes and gone, that isn't hairy enough. Can we put more hairs on that, please? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, I guess one of the next frontiers in prosthetic limb development is, is how to incorporate uh, feeling and mm. how to incorporate automatic responses. So there's one recent development uh, researchers at Newcastle University came up with this it's got an AI camera inside it it's a, a hand uh, or an arm uh, fitting and it can recognise hundreds of objects using 
the camera. And when you move to grab something with your prosthetic arm, it automatically moves into the right position to grasp it. So if you're reaching for a pair of tweezers, it'll move into a pinch position. Or if you're reaching for a volleyball, it'll move into a sort of spread hand position so you can pick it up like that. It sounds unbelievable. And it could be trained to, you know, develop more and more Mm. positions. Can you you sort of code it so that if it's reaching for your 10th, Toffee crisp of the night, it will refuse to clamp down on it or something. Anna, we don't have time for your toffee crisp yeah. problem. Maybe if you today. hadn't sent that letter to so many people, you wouldn't have so many to get through. <laughs> A toffee crisp. No one mentions uh, toffee crisps. They're the best chocolates, aren't they? I agree, they're the best. Are they? I'm not sure I've ever had one. <gasps> what? My, oh my yeah. God, that's like me not watching ET. Jesus Christ. We we definitely don't have time for the fact that you've never eaten Toffee Crisps. That's amazing. Sandy. They're the, okay. They are one of, the, one of the very best. Oh, are they? I reckon even okay. Richard Osman would agree with that. <laughs> I was reading up about Aaron Rolston. Do you guys remember Aaron Rolston? A tw- 127 hours? Oh, yeah. I remember that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he was the, um, the mountaineer slash adventurer who fell down a little uh, gap between some boulders. A, boulders coll- a boulder collapsed on his arm. And he had to cut himself free. And so he now, uh, when you see pictures of him, if he goes mountaineering, he has um, a prosthetic that has a little pick on the end. Oh, wow. They went back and they actually recovered his arm. So it was stuck under this boulder. They managed to winch it out, uh, winch the boulder up and get his arm back. And they cremated it there on the spot. And he scattered the ashes um, symbolically all over the area. So that's really nice. But the, the little fact that I really like that I've discovered about him is his current place of residence. He lives in a place called Boulder, Colorado. Oh, no way. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I have one last thing on prosthetics. I was I was amazed to learn about... Uh, there's a big comedian back in the early days of American comedy during the silent era uh, called Harold Lloyd. And Harold Lloyd was, at the time, more famous than Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. He was, he was the one who was pulling in most money at the box office. And what I didn't know is that he lost two of his fingers. He lost his thumb and his index finger um, when he was doing publicity for a film of his called Haunted Spooks. He stood in the photo with a prop bomb in his hand, which turned oh, out no. to be a real bomb. No. Yeah, so the fuse <laughs> Wait a minute, what kind, of, what kind of prop department has two boxes, <laughs> one with prop bombs and one with real bombs, and accidentally takes out the wrong one? How do you, how do you end up in that situation? Now, what we've done is we've labelled the prop bombs with a P and we've labelled the real bombs with a lowercase b. Don't put them upside down next to each other. Uh, Was that someone simultaneously in the middle of a battle somewhere throwing the prop bomb and going, oh, God damn it, what's going on? Yeah, so it 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 went off in his hand. Yeah, it took off his thumb, it took off his index finger, it temporarily blinded him. He took eight months to recover, and then they built a glove for him which had the thumb and the finger. And um, the most famous surviving sequence or or even image that we'll know of Harold Lloyd is him hanging off a clock Mm, um, face. Mm. He did that with a prosthetic thumb and and finger. It, wow. was, it was after oh, wow. that. It's during that is insane. Issue. I'd never heard that. Yeah. Right cool. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that you can now diagnose a urinary tract infection using a fidget spinner. <laughs> Finally, I can get all my old fidget spinners out. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that is worth saying. Customised, right? Customised fidget spinner. Don't go pissing you on can't. your children's... 
No. Oh, what? What do you mean, children? Um, <laughs> they were for adults on, as well, weren't they? Don't piss on any fidget spinners, whether they're the children's edition or the special adult fidget spinners <laughs> that James owns, the erotic fidget spinners. <laughs> You can't, I saw, sorry to interrupt, um, when you haven't even told us a fact yet, but because um, I didn't write this down because I didn't think it would come up, but did you see that there was a, you know, um, like, are they called pasties or pasties that um, mm. erotic dancers put on their nipples and spin them yeah, pasties, around? Pasties, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Cornish pasties. Yeah. <laughs> it, it happens mostly in Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> the strippers do this, but they made one uh, with fidget spinners, didn't they? Which like fidget oh, wow. spinned around when they twirled their breasts. Ah. Of course they did. Gosh. Yeah. Anyway. So you can get adult fidget spinners is what you're saying. Yeah. They're not the ones I have though. <laughs> uh, Andy, what is the, how yeah. does this work? Well, this is a new scientific development. Basically, it's it's a it's a pain uh, diagnosing urinary tract infections. It can take sometimes days to get the results back, and scientists are always looking for ways to improve the process. So, this is a way of detecting pathogens in someone's urine, which might reveal if they've got an infection. Um, so, and what you need is detectors that are cheap and simple and accurate, and that's what this new one is. They custom made this team a fidget spinner. Um, where you you pee in the spinner, uh, <laughs> no, no, effectively. No. Pee, pee, so, in a, okay. pee in a jug. Yeah, unless your aim is phenomenal, you pee in a jug, <laughs> uh, and then the jug is yeah, a bit of it's poured into the fidget spinner, and it it spins, uh, it spins around obviously, and the the centrifugal force pushes the urine sample outwards, and it pushes it through a little internal membrane inside the spinner, and. The membrane is is fine enough to stop bacteria, which can tell you whether you've got one of these infections. And then all you need to do is add a little bit of a dye, which turns the bacteria orange. You look at the membrane a little bit later. If there's orange on the membrane, you have these bacteria and you know that you've got the infection. Wow. I would have added a dye, which is a colour that's less similar to the colour of urine. <laughs> yeah. How orange is people's urine these it's days? It's more orange James, than it is purple. James, I know you're a Sunny D fanatic, <laughs> but... <laughs> Look, it's for adults as well as children, so we delight. Um, no, but do you know uh, what I mean? Yeah. Like, that would make sense. To I do. I, I, yeah. I imagine that other other dyes are also okay. available. But the the good news is that it cuts the test times to under an hour, and it does also mean that people don't get diagnosed antibiotics unnecessarily. Maybe in the interim while they're waiting mm. for the results, so doctors might say, "Oh, we'll just take some of these anyway," which is a bad thing because it leads to antibiotic resistance. So mm. yeah, this is a good. Finally, we have found a use for the fidget spinner <laughs> three years later <laughs> is it commercially available can we all buy one no oh. no you can't it's just been invented no. it's very and new. also Dan, <laughs> i think you probably want a medical professional to do your uh, diagnosis of utis rather than just pissing <laughs> on your own fidget spinner oh yeah i just <laughs> but think, is, is, isn't the idea that you could get it like a pregnancy test you know and you'd be able to buy one and then piss on it and then oh, maybe I suppose you could play with what? it yeah i guess you could I guess so, yeah. Or just they're issued to doctors who know how to administer the tests. But either way, <laughs> I it's think a good everyone thing. should be their own doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, it sounds really simple. Give it a spin, pour the dye in. What am I, what am I missing? Wow, here? you've already got the slogan. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that they think it might work for in the future is also viral infections. So um, oh. hopefully, this technology in the future you'll be able to use with saliva instead of urine, and you'll be able to detect viruses if you get your mesh fine enough. Um, your membrane fine enough, then it will be able That's to find uh, viruses. So it might be that if there's a viral infection going around, then you'll mm. be able to use something like this to tell 
whether you have it. Wow. That's, that's so great because cool. fidget spinners have had a bad rep in a lot of corners over the years, haven't they? Yes. They've been sort of banned quite a lot of places, quite a lot of schools in America went through a phase of banning them for being really distracting for kids. There were lots of warnings that some of them were dangerous. Do you remember there were various fidget spinners came out that were a bit like um, ninja stars uh, that had sort of pointed oh, ends? really? And there was actually this woman who was employed to test them, a, test, a blades expert apparently called Sarah Hainsworth, who BBC Watchdog <laughs> made her test these things to see if they could penetrate skin or eyeballs. And her job, and only experts should attempt this, was to get a fidget spinner and stab a tomato with it, which apparently represents an eyeball, and then stab some pork skin with it that represents human skin. That's so interesting, because I have some fidget spinners in my house, mm. and mm. I've also been trained how to throw ninja stars, so I can actually try it. And I have some tomatoes. You're qualified. Do you say that anyone can do this, Anna? Uh, well, again, I think everyone should be their own blades tester as well as their own doctor. So yes, you should, you should start stabbing tomatoes. Awesome. Wow. Uh, the trick is in the flick of the wrist at the end, just in case. You hold it like between your thumb and your first finger and then you throw it and then you flick your wrist at the last second and then it helps it to spin and helps it to stick into things. That's like flooring a knife. That's why Harold Lloyd could never have become a ninja <laughs> after his terrible publicity accident. Yes. Mm. He did have two hands. Good point. <laughs> That's why Harold Lloyd would have had to be ambidextrous if he was to realise his ambition of becoming a ninja. It's ironic yeah. that the one famous thing about him is he's on a clock which does have two hands. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, that is such a slap in the face, isn't it? Um, we, we wrote about fidget spinners at the height of their, um, of their craze oh, yeah. back in 2017 in our first book of the year. And James, you found out this thing, which is that of all the top 25 toys on Amazon.co.uk... All of them were fidget spinners. Yeah, and I, I went to check up Amazon today just to see where they sit uh, in the top 100, and How not a single fidget spinner has stayed in the top 100. Really? But yeah, um, and the top uh, toy at the moment is a black balloon that's in the shape of a zero. I think you can get it multicolored, but that's the image what? that you're met with. Wow. That's quite a nihilist thing to give to a child. It really is. <laughs> yeah. A black really zero. Hard. Happy birthday. <laughs> Jesus. But it did last longer than everyone thought. So that was 2017 where it was at its peak. But in 2019, fidget spinners still accounted for a fifth of all toy sales. What? Wow. Really? It's amazing. I was looking at um, other toys that can be used for medical uses. Oh, cool. Uh, and I found a paper called A Novel Method for the Removal of Ear Ceremony. So that's earwax. Uh, can okay. you think of what toy might be used to remove earwax? Oh, oh, okay, yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, a yo-yo, but a very small yo-yo that you just sort of dip in the ear. <laughs> it's a good first guess, um, but okay. not quite okay. right, no. Um, um, so something oh, something absorbent or something with a little scraping edge Yeah, you to need it. a scraping like a Lego man's hand, you know. You could go in <laughs> with that pincer grip. It's got a pincer grip on it, doesn't it? That's good. Yeah. Oh, oh, silly putty. Just put in so much silly putty that the earwax is forced out. So have you guys never had any issues with earwax? I think you haven't because you don't seem to know what they actually use in real life. Mm. You, oh, suck, they... you suck it out. But I'm trying to think of something that you suck. <laughs> uh, that's a toy. A straw? One of they those really fun suck. straws. <laughs> they don't suck it out. <laughs> ear doctors all have massive uh, mouths and they just put their entire mouth around your ear. And <laughs> It's a Henry Hoover and they just... <laughs> Into your head, and they have to stop before the brain comes out. Um, no, no, I know what it's going to be. It's going to be a. It's going to be a fake doctor's syringe, maybe. 
Exactly. They syringe it out normally. Yeah, uh, okay. And what it is, is a super soaker Max D5000. Wow. Um, this was a guy who, um, he was living on an island and the child had real problems with earwax and he couldn't get to the um, doctors to get a syringe quickly enough. So he said the owner of a Super Soaker Max D5000 was sought out. After hearing an explanation of its intended application, he granted permission for its use. <laughs> Verbal consent was obtained from the patient. He then changed into swimming shorts, located himself on an ideal location on the deck, and held a Tupperware container, product number 1611-16, to the side of his neck. <laughs> The Super Soaker Max D5000 was filled with body temperature water and then mildly pressurized using the blue hand pump. The trigger was depressed, releasing a gentle, narrow jet of water, which was aimed along the posterior wall of the ear canal. And then after 15 seconds, bits of wax started coming out and it worked. I might do that. That's great. I think don't do that. This was a (laughs) medically trained professional. And this is a thing that happened and it is in a medical paper. But I think if you do have earwax problems... Maybe you should consult a professional. You guys are so boring. Don't piss in my fidget spinners. Don't put <laughs> soakers in my head. Um, do you know what the best-selling doll of 1976 was? You'll be surprised. Oh, 1976. Um, 1976. Was it a Richard Army? Nixon doll? Was oh, that was very? No, I was about to say very close. It's not very close. <laughs> was it a? Um, oh, when was Star Wars? 77. So maybe it wasn't. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't Luke Skywalker. Oh, well, sh- I know. Oh, oh, The Exorcist didn't that come out in seventy? Oh, nice. Okay, well, it, you're all kind of getting closer. It is. It is a pop culture thing. Uh, it was Cher. Ah, was it? Really? Yeah. There were Sunny and Cher dolls, and um, the Cher one was very customizable. Had different outfits and things, and it was hugely popular. Really? Uh, Best selling doll of the entire year was Cher. That wow. makes sense. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I am surprised, Andy. I just don't have any, I don't have any references that I can make jokes about Cher. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to... trying to think of a single Cher song. Shoop Shoop song is the only one I can think yeah. of. The famous one with Sonny Bono. What was that? The duet. I got, I got you, babe. babe. I got you, babe. babe. Yeah. Yeah. I was just yeah. imagining being a parent and having two kids and one Cher doll and convincing them it was called Cher because they had to share it. And I'm sorry, I switched <laughs> off and went there. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that Al Capone ran a soup kitchen during the Great Depression. He served beef on Thanksgiving in 1930 because there had just been a theft of 1,000 turkeys nearby, and he didn't want the authorities to think it was him. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Um, Yeah. And he had to do something with the 50 cows he'd nicked, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) That's probably more like it. Um, So, yeah, um, Al Capone, Chicago gangster, public enemy number one, um, bad guy, killed lots of his enemies. Uh, especially in the St. Valentine's Day massacre in 1929. Um, But like a lot of these people who were bad guys, he had this kind of Robin Hood reputation where he would give to charity in the local area. And the idea, I think, sometimes is that he's less likely to get ratted out if people like him. Although it has to be said that this soup kitchen, although it definitely existed, he might have not paid any money for it because he could have, like, leaned on some local businesses to donate their um, (laughs) beef and whatever uh, because, obviously, that extortion was a a lot of his shtick. So he might have said to you guys, you better give me some stuff for my charity or else. 
So that's the negative portrayal <laughs> yeah. of Al Capone. But on the other hand, it was a soup kitchen. It was a soup kitchen, yeah. And uh, they Good gave guy. breakfast, lunch and dinner to um, over 2,000 people in Chicago every single day. Uh, and the newspapers kind of were not sure about it because on one hand they thought obviously this is a good thing that people are being fed but on the bad hand they could see him becoming like the mayor of chicago if people liked him too much mm. and they thought if a gangster becomes the mayor of our city then we could be in real trouble yeah. he was sort of de facto mayor for quite a while wasn't he in that he yes. ran the city essentially well yeah he didn't really need to become mayor because he had um a guy called william h thompson who was known as big bill and basically al capone funded him and made sure that he stayed in place and Big Bill was um, sometimes known as Kaiser Bill because he was very pro-German during World War One, oh. and in the 1920s he threatened to punch the British king in the snoot. Wow. <laughs> Mind you, it's not the worst war in which to be pro-German, to be fair to him. No, there, there have been worse ones since. Yeah. I just I find Al Capone so amazing mm. uh, how mm. it's like he conforms to all the gangster cliches and the fact that he could just commit multiple murders and everyone know and no one be able to do anything about it. I mean, he he shot people in, you know, open public. There was yeah. one of his rivals. He just went down into a bar and shot him in the head. Mm. And everyone saw, everyone knew he'd done it, but no one's going to say anything. They were all distracted by an argument about a dictionary going on in the other corner. <laughs> <weren't they? laughs> Newspapers reported it as an unfortunate occurrence. <laughs> Um, Anna, I, I wonder though if you've got that wrong. You're probably right, but I wonder if you've got that wrong in when you say he conformed to the cliches. I wonder if Al Capone invented the cliches. Yeah, they, you're right. You're all the movies right. born off the back of his life and of all mm. the gangsters of that time are what inform us about the mafia. Yeah. Um, so he kind of invented cliche. Yeah. I didn't know that he was called Scarface. I mean, I'm sure anyone who you know has mm. read a bit about it did know that. But yeah, I didn't know that he had the big scars and that the first film called Scarface was about him. No, I didn't know that either. And he hated the well, name. So, yeah, yes, he did, yeah. And he got he got the scars on his face from insulting a lady. The the brother of a lady was uh, taken aback and slashed his face. Um, but he used to claim that he got it as a result of some service time in the army because uh, he didn't want to just admit that he was, no. oh, you know, lost a battle. Um, in the fight where he got scarred, um, Al Capone, his brother, James Capone, kind of got in involved in it and pushed the guy who, who scarred him through a glass window because obviously he just cut his brother. Mm. Uh, and he was so worried that this guy was going to come back and get him that he fled the city and joined the circus. And then he <laughs> served in World War I. And then after the war, he changed his name after his favorite cowboy and became a prohibition agent and basically spent his whole time stopping people from moving alcohol around, which is where Al Capone got most of his money. But he didn't realize mm. that that had happened because at that time Al Capone wasn't really famous for that kind of thing. And so he only later found out that his brother, who he'd left after that fight when he was 16 years old, had become the greatest mobster and he had become one of the big uh, prohibition agents. There needs to be a film that imagines the meeting between them where he knows he's arresting this huge prohibition breaker and suddenly they meet it, face to face. He was called Vincenzo Capone, wasn't he, this guy? Originally. Yeah. And then he uh, he became Richard Hart. But there were so many Capones. There were, I think, uh, eight or nine Capone siblings in all. And the last member of the family alive, oh, she was alive in 2012. and No, she is still alive because she's on Twitter, uh, is Deirdre Capone. Wow. 
The most yeah, harmless she, name, Deirdre. Well, I know. Love it. She defends uh, Al Capone's reputation, which I think is an uphill battle. Um, she's written a book saying he was a mobster, not a monster. Um, and she's written a book all about him, which includes recipes like meatballs a la Capone. Wow. But and, mm. and these days she's just retweeting, you know, like dogs and <laughs> meditation. She has a Twitter account. It's so weird that a Capone family you member... You shouldn't be judged by your, by your grandparents, should you? Really? Oh, or your Twitter account. I'd just oh, yeah. like to make very clear. <laughs> he was quite a family man, though. Again, as the cliches then played out, uh, he had that typical, I've got a wife who theoretically doesn't know anything that's going on, but maybe she knows everything. He was. He really loved his son. So his son had hearing damage, probably because it was congenital syphilis contracted from Al, Al Capone, which he famously had. Um, and he spent $100,000 fixing his son's hearing in 1925 when he didn't he didn't even really have a huge amount of spare. Right. So he was a family guy. But his syphilis was a much bigger part of his life than his gang time, wasn't it? I, I can, can we say that for sure? What? <laughs> Time-wise. Total time okay. Time-wise, sorry. Time-wise, it, it was right. a longer part of his life. You're right. <laughs> okay, so biographers aren't always complaining. Why do they always focus on the gangster years? It's more about his rancid penis. <laughs> I think of myself as a syphilis patient who happens to be in the mob. Not a monster who has syphilis. <laughs> Well, I think by the end, he basically couldn't think of himself as anything. He was, it was so awful. I didn't sort of realise the symptoms of untreated syphilis. But by the time he went to prison in 1930, um, he was starting to really suffer from it. There's a theory that one of the reasons he was moved from Atlanta prison to Alcatraz, where he was famously sent, is actually that he was being bullied in the Atlanta prison because he was very weak and he was starting to lose his faculties because of the syphilis. And his cellmate had to protect him because, you know, everyone else was bullying him and so he was accused of special treatment because this summer was protecting him so he was shifted but yeah by by the time he got to Alcatraz he was having problems he was one of the first people ever to be treated with penicillin in 1942 really? for it wow. yeah have you heard of his lawyer mm. or one of his lawyers i'm sure don't he don't know what's he called time. if it's charlie chaplin uh, is... yes if it's <laughs> someone okay. i haven't heard of no <laughs> he was called hiram mendo no no Okay, um, so he defended him in a trial, I think, in 1930, which was when they first nabbed him. You know, they eventually got him for tax evasion, but they first got him for uh, unlicensed ownership of a gun or or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, this is the earlier trial. That was in about 1930. Guess when Hira Mendo retired? Okay, so he must have been at least 30 then, and he retired when he's 65. So he retired in 1965. He retired in 1994. <laughs> 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 yes. He he died in 2001, aged 107, but he kept practicing law until he was 100 years old. Oh, my God. Wow. I know. Incredible. Was he Donald he, Trump's lawyer? He just feels like the kind of guy who definitely must have been Donald <laughs> Trump's lawyer at some point. <laughs> he, was an, he was just amazing. His working life, he started working when he was six at the age of, in 1900 and he kept working for 94 years <laughs> he wasn't working as a lawyer when he was six just yeah, to clarify yeah. <laughs> he was who would you rather have the six-year-old lawyer or the 100-year-old lawyer <laughs> there was he had another lawyer who was called edward o'hare who testified against him in court not a good lawyer <laughs> Oh, wow. That's not the kind of lawyer you want. And um, he's slightly a notable character, not just for his connection to Capone, but his son is called Edward Butch O'Hare Jr., off which uh, O'Hare Airport in Chicago is named after. He was a... Oh, really? um, Yeah, he was a um, Medal of Honor uh, fighter pilot who single-handedly shot down 
eight Japanese bombers. Um, so he's, he was a hero for Chicago. Why did his lawyer testify against him, though? That does seem like a bit of a rookie mistake. I'm sure he wasn't representing him anymore at that point. (laughs) (laughs) I call to the stand. (laughs) Me. (laughs) (laughs) Al Capone, the only time he got shot um, was when he shot himself, wasn't it? He shot himself by accident. 1928, had a golf game. So James Golf, dangerous game. You've got to be careful. I'm playing on Saturday. Well, try not to put your gun too near golf clubs in the bag because that's how he did it. He it's, The details are slightly unclear, but we think that after a round of golf, he got into his car and he opened his golf bag and fiddled around and he was keeping his gun in there as well. And he shot himself and he shot himself sort of multiple times, I think, through the groin and through the... Up and what? Why? Why? What? Why did he keep shooting after the first... That doesn't stack up, Anna. It really doesn't. I think he had multiple wounds. Maybe the bullet went in and out and in and out, kind of like a sewing needle. Um, Or if you press your finger on a trigger accidentally, can it deploy multiple bullets? It's a machine gun, it can. Yeah. I wonder who doesn't keep a machine gun in their golf bag. If afterwards someone said, did you get a hole in one? And he said, a hole in one of my testicles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, he He wasn't a funny guy. He, I read in one Capone biography this thing that gang, habit that gangsters had in the twenties that Brooklyn gangsters had, which apparently they devoted huge amounts of time to. Um, so, and this is also in a, a book about Brooklyn gangs, but I couldn't find first-hand evidence. Apparently, gangsters devoted huge amounts of time to the look, and the look is a, a threatening stare that you give someone. It was a deadly <laughs> gaze designed to strike mortal fear into the heart of an enemy. And it was more frightening than any kind of violence or anything like that. And so they they practiced it. Apparently, Al Capone is very good at it. It's the source of all his... Yeah, so Andy's doing it, sort of trying to do it now. Um, you know, you can't shake your fist, James. That is cheating. <laughs> but apparently, that young gangster's habits was to stand in front of the mirror for hours on end each day, practicing the look. Wow. That's so funny. Okay. Yeah, Capone used to think that he was very a well dressed guy as well. He had a look in the other way, didn't he? He had the nickname Snorky, which he much preferred to um, to Scarface. So he's quite embarrassed by Scarface, and like if there were cameras on, he would try and move the scars to the so they couldn't see them on the camera. Um, but he, I mean, he wouldn't. He wouldn't move the scars. Obviously, that's very <laughs> difficult to do. Isn't it? <laughs> he would move the scars, but only because they were attached to his head, and he was moving his head. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he liked to be called snarky, which um, in those days meant someone who was well dressed. He looks a bit yeah. snarky. Snorky. Snorky. Yeah. Sounds like a cartoon dog. He's much less threatening. Al Snorky Capone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I read a thing in Gentleman's Gazette recently, which was about Al Capone. It said, Al Capone was known as much for his sense of style as he was for his psychopathic tendencies, <laughs> which I would dispute. I think you're right. I think it's number one, syphilis. Number two, psychopathic tendencies. Number three, <laughs> style. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the hierarchy. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. Oh, he's giving us the look. At James Harkin. (laughs) And Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. 
Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at No Such Thing, or our website. You can go to nosuchthingasafish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there, as well as links to bits of merchandise that we've released over the years. Okay, guys, once again, we hope you're staying well. We hope you're safe. We hope your family are doing well. Um, thank you so much, as ever, for listening to us during this weird, weird time. We will be back again next week with another episode, and we'll see you then. Goodbye. Well done. Done. Can, I, that was really good. can I quickly say at Deirdre Capone? Just because we mentioned her on Twitter and I don't know if it's funny or not. She's actually Deirdre Marie Cap. Well, I don't know why she put in Marie and left out Capone, but there we go. Wow, because Cap is a slang word for putting a cap in it for shooting someone. That comes from that comes from Capone. Put a You're cap kidding. in your ass. Come on, we just did a gullible podcast, Dad. Oh, <laughs> right at the end. <laughs> I held back. I deliberately it. held back. Damn it. And we're still recording. (laughs) 